Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. We trust today's message will challenge you and move you closer to Christ. Here's pastor, teacher, and author, Phil Moser. Well, it's a joy to be with you in opening up the Word of God this morning. Matt, thanks again so much for leading our folks in worship and for taking some time to instruct them. I'm going to give you a secret on Matt you may not know. He's a very proficient musician, but he is exceptionally gifted at playing, are you ready for this, the tuba, okay? Now, I don't know if you've ever had an experience of the tuba leading in worship, all right? But I have, okay? A number of years ago, I was visiting a woman who was on hospice. I took my guitar. I was getting ready to sing some songs to her. She, uh, at that stage, was sleeping through the process. And as I'm singing these songs to her, her husband says to me, do you mind if I join you? And I said, sure. He said, I play the tuba. And I said, hey, whatever. Let's, let, let's do this thing, right? And so he went and he got out his tuba. And I'm singing when we all get to heaven, strumming away on my guitar, and he's oompa, oompa, and along with me. Okay. And right about then, <laughs> not making this up, right about then, there's a, the doorbell rings, and in comes the hospice nurse. Okay. And she walks in, and we just keep right on going, and she says, I've been doing this a long time, and I've never seen this. Right? So it isn't necessarily the greatest instrument for worship, but hey, listen, it can actually uh, serenade someone right to heaven if need be. So that's the story there. Matt, thanks so much for ministering to us and leading us. And um, we rejoice in how God is extending his ministry over in Lancaster, where you guys are as well. Will you stand with me as we read the word together out of honor and respect to God's, for God's word? I'm going to pick up the reading in Acts chapter 4 this morning. Um, In Acts chapter 4, verse 32, so if you're following along with me, there's where we are. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. And the young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Go ahead and be seated. There's a couple of things we notice in this text, uh, which is just a cool word. One of the things we notice in the text is the word great, or your Greek word there is mega. So when I say mega, you think of something that's really big. 
And there's three times that word occurs in our text this morning. It occurs when it speaks of the apostles' teaching, their witness and testimony. It's referred to as great power. It's referred to just right after that when it unpacks how all of a sudden everybody was just selling what they had and giving it to the poor. And there it's referred to as great grace. And when Ananias and when Sapphira, his wife, comes in a little later, and she dies too because of the lie that they had told, it's referred to as great fear. So just kind of unpack that with me in our message this morning. This is the applied greatness of God. God is mega God. He is far bigger than anything we can ever imagine. And if you let your eye wander back up into Acts chapter 4 a little bit, you'll see that there they prayed and called out. The believers called out, O sovereign God, you are the one who created heaven and earth. Like all of that, God creates. But here, that word is applied to the message of God, the gift of God, and finally, the judgment of God. Now, for just a moment, kind of let me set the context Everything is going unbelievably splendid in this New Testament church. People are coming to Christ by the thousands, okay, like literally. There is so much going on, and everybody gets all excited and says, hey, listen, I've owned this house for 30 years. I got a lot of equity. I'm just going to sell it. I'm going to be homeless for a while, and everybody starts to give their money to one another. Like, you can't hardly imagine what that would feel like, right? And then all of a sudden, Imagine you say, hey, you got to come to my church. Wait till you hear what's happening in my church. Come to my church. Come to my church. And everybody comes to your church, and you're sitting there with your friends, and all of a sudden, Peter says, hey, you lied to the Holy Spirit. Bam, the guy drops dead. Okay. And then they carry him out. Okay. That's not, you would think, that's not a really good pattern for church growth. Okay. Because every visitor right there is saying, what just happened? And then three hours later, because they're still holding the service three hours later, which probably isn't a good pattern for church growth either, okay, all of a sudden in comes his wife, and the same thing happens. Bam, she goes down, and they carry her out, right? And I just want you to picture, it doesn't really matter what we think is happening on the surface. What we really need to wrestle with is how was God revealing his great power? How was he revealing his great grace? And why did that bring about great fear? So let's just take the message, first of all. We find that in the text because we read, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now, just for a moment, stop and think about this. There's a lot of cool stuff happening. Lame people are jumping up, leaping into the temple, because even though they haven't walked for 40 years. All of that stuff's happening. A little later, you're going to find great signs and wonders. But I want you to see this, that it was the great power that was associated with the message, not the things that everybody saw. It was simply the message. You say, well, what makes that message so powerful? Well, here's a couple things. It has the power to create new life. That's right. The message alone, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has the power to create new life. It isn't about convincing someone. It isn't about apologetically arguing with someone. It is the message alone, the simple gospel message that has the ability, just like that, to create new life. You just have to think about that for a second. And you see that throughout all of the book of Acts. I mean, notice this a little earlier. Here's Peter giving the message, and watch what happens. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. See how it's about Jesus? In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. Here's the message. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The message is this. When you place your faith in Christ, you are forgiven for your sins. 
But the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness, same word used here, and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. There's your word, save or salvation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added to that day about 3,000 souls. This goes on through the book of Acts. A little later, it says several thousand more trusted Christ. And then when you get to Acts chapter 4, it says 5,000 trusted Christ. Like, these are huge, huge numbers. And I just want to remind you that it came about when the power came through the message. Power to create new life. It's available to those who believe in Jesus. Simple, simply, that's it. It's available to those who believe in Jesus. One of our pastors who was here years ago used to tell me, Phil, when you talk about the gospel, make sure you say something like, it's the Jesus that we read about in the Bible. It's not just Jesus that you make up in your own mind. It's not the Jesus that somebody else tells you on the latest podcast. It's the Jesus as he's revealed to us in the scriptures. That's what we know of him. It's not some other Jesus. Here's the second idea. It's the power to inspire courageous actions, and it's practiced by those who were once fearful. The word boldness shows up over and over again in this text. These people, the apostles and those surrounding them, had this incredible boldness. By the way, the word boldness in in our New Testament is a word that's comprised of two words. The first word is the word to speak, and the prefix on it means to speak it out, like actually say something out. Like you can't say, I'm bold, I just never talk. In fact, sometimes we might use this word and say that someone is outspoken. So here they are. There's boldness, even though they were deeply fearful before. Notice it in the text. And now the Lord, look upon their threat. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant their praying. And grant to your servants to continue to speak with your word, with all boldness. Let's speak it out. And then a little later, as the, as, the, uh, as the ground there is shaken, they speak the word of God with boldness. And notice the same thing in Acts chapter 4, 13. I really like this one. Now, when they saw the boldness, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Okay? They knew they weren't educated. They knew they were unlearned. But, hey, listen, they saw how bold they were standing in front of, like, a Supreme Court in, in the Jewish Sanhedrin. And they said, man, those guys have been with Jesus. So this boldness also is expressed in the way we communicate the message. There's one last one. It's the power to change priorities. For a moment, just get this. This is mega power. It doesn't come about in something you see. It comes about in a simple message that's given that creates new life, that inspires courageous actions, and finally, that changes priorities. It's lived out by those who used to put self before others. That's what I mean by the changing of priorities. I love last Sunday. Last Sunday, um, Rachel shared a little bit about some opportunities in Brazil. Some of you came running down immediately just like a human vacuum, just sucked up all the children's cards right off the tables, okay? As we should as Christians. We should look and see that, listen, whatever I have, I'm okay surrendering that for others. I love hearing the story of a church... uh, up in the San Francisco area, back when the whole Jesus revolution was taking place, they typically did this. They said, uh, it's time to take the offering, and they passed the plates. They'd say, um, if you have something to give, put it in. If you need something today, take it out. You say, now that's a church growth program right there, okay? I just tell you that we should learn to be that gracious with what we have. 
It's a really cool little word here. The NIV renders it from time to time. They would sell their things. It, it, they would sell their homes. It meant that they, it, it's in the imperfect tense, which means they saw the need and then they made the sale. Like they came to church and they saw somebody in need and they realized, hey, listen, I don't have the cash, but I do have property. And they would see the need and they would just go home and sell something. As they saw the need, they gave. This is a ch- total change of priorities that we end up thinking in terms of what we've been given, that we might give it, not that we might grab it. We tend to want more and more and more. When I do premarital counseling, um, and I, whenever I get to talk about the finances with folks, I always say, listen, the most important thing you can give, and saving is one thing, but if you can develop a habit of giving, it throttles back your desire to want things. Literally, it does. Because all of a sudden, someone's saying to you, hey, listen, for just a little bit more, we'll sell you this car. And you say, "Mm, I really like that car, but if I buy that car, I'm not going to be able to give to the people I want to give to. I'm going to end up only giving to myself what I want. And what I want you to see is this totally changed their priorities. They began to give. And we see that in the text. Here it is in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. But they shared everything they had. They had Essentially, all things in common. Last week, I gave you this simple little statement. It's appropriate here, I think. A changed life is the best argument that God is real. You can give the gospel. You can share the message all you want. But if your life hasn't been changed, guess what? Nobody's really going to believe that God is real. They're simply going to see hypocrisy. A genuinely changed life is the best argument that God is real. Let's talk about the gift of God. The gift of God inspires great grace because the text actually says, and with mega power, great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Mega grace was upon them all. The gift of God inspires great grace. Now, one of the things you need to understand about the word grace is the word grace and and the word gift have the same root in common. Um, and so in, the, in the, your New Testament language, it's the same idea. When you read grace, you can think in terms of gift, not something that's earned, but something that's freely given, undeserved. Okay. So let's just unpack that for a little bit. Here's the first thing I want you to understand about the great grace of God. It's easier to give to others when you realize how much the Father has given you. That's right. It's easier to give to others when you realize how much the Father has given you. And maybe one of the reasons we don't give to others is because we have kind of numbed our thinking or gotten really busy with life and we've forgotten how much the Father has given us. So let me unpack that for you with a really familiar verse. Now, um, um, Matt had you singing with him, so I want you to say this verse with me, okay? And if you don't know the verse, um, just move your lips and nobody will know you don't know it, all right? Okay. Here we go, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This verse teaches us three things God cannot do. That's right. You heard me. Three things God cannot do. God cannot love us more than he has loved us. That's right. For God so loved the world. Sometimes we struggle to love our family members. Sometimes we struggle to love our neighbors. Sometimes we struggle to love people who aren't like us. Not so with God. For God so loved the world. All nationalities, all individuals, all people across the globe, God loved the world so much that he gave. Here's the other one. God cannot give more than he has given. I have four children. Two of them are sons. 
If you say, Phil, I need your son to die for me, I'll say, um, go talk to Pastor Scott. Right? Okay. I'm not interested in my son's dying for anybody. Okay. But God was. Can you just let that thought settle in for a moment? When you and I complain about what God hasn't given us yet, you just got to know God cannot give us more than he has given us. He's given us the son. And there's one more thing God cannot do in the text. God cannot make it simpler than it is. He doesn't ask you to climb Mount Everest. He doesn't ask you to do massive good deeds. He doesn't ask you to do penance for all the things you did wrong. The text simply says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should have eternal life. There it is. It's simply believing in Jesus, offering eternal life. You know why that's important? That's important because when you and I forget momentarily how much God loves and how much God has given, we don't really see grace very well, and we're not very gracious with others. It's easier to give to others when you realize how much the Father has given you. Here's the second idea. It's easier to go unnoticed when you remember how humbly Jesus served. It's easier to go unnoticed when you remember how humbly Jesus served. Now, Barnabas is introduced to us here in chapter 4, verse 36. Here's what I want you to see. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, was a Levite, a native of Cyprus. Now just think about this for a moment. For some reason, Luke inserts the fact that he was a Levite. Here's what you want to know about the Levites. They weren't the priests. They were the servants of the priests. They were the ones who did the work behind the scenes. They were like, I don't know, they were like the tech crew on a Sunday morning, okay? You didn't see them, um, and, but, but they were working behind the scenes, Those are the Levites. And I think this is included here to let you know that this is exactly how Barnabas worked. Remember in Acts chapter 9, when all of a sudden the Christians are saying, hey, who's the guy Saul? He changed his name to Paul. That's the guy who killed Christians. Why are we inviting him in our church? This is not a good scenario. We don't want him here. Barnabas stepped in and said, hey, I know this guy. He's got a changed life. He's a believer now. We can trust him. Let's bring him in. And somehow, Paul forgets that Barnabas worked with him. And so later in Acts chapter 15, when Paul and Barnabas are about to go on a missions trip, and Paul says, I'm not taking Mark with us, man. That guy bailed on us before we even got uh, hardly off the ship. He bailed on us and wanted to come home. And Barnabas says, that's okay. I disagree with you. I'm going to go over here and stand by Mark, and I'm going to help Mark. The same thing happens in Acts chapter 11, where there's an Antioch church and there's a Jerusalem church, and both of them are arguing, and Barnabas steps in. Barnabas is the guy who's so unnoticed, but you know what? I think he remembered how Jesus served. That's right. Remember Jesus? Upper room, disciples are arguing about who will be the greatest, and all of a sudden something starts to move around their feet. And they stop arguing and look down, and there's Jesus washing their feet. It's easier to go unnoticed when you remember how humbly Jesus served, and that's exactly what Barnabas does here. He sells his land. We don't know if the land was on the mainland or if it was on the island of Cyprus. We do know this, that when he went back to preach with the first missionary journey with, with Paul, the first place they went was to Cyprus. That is where Barnabas grew up, as if Barnabas was saying, hey, I got some friends who need to know Jesus too, right? That's Barnabas. Here's one final one. It's easier to keep on giving when the Spirit empowers your generosity. It's easier to keep on giving when the Spirit empowers your generosity. Throughout this passage, over and over again, you see this idea that the Holy Spirit was involved. The Holy Spirit was empowering. 
In fact, in Acts 4.31, you see that the Holy Spirit empowered them and they went out and sold stuff and gave it away. But in Acts chapter 5, you see that Ananias and Sapphira had lied to the Holy Spirit. They weren't doing what they were doing in the Spirit's power. They were doing it in their power, which is why they kept something back. And that brings us, of course, to the final one. Here it is. The judgment of God brings great fear. The judgment of God brings great fear. Now, I was wrestling with this all week, thinking, you know, we just live in a culture that doesn't talk about the judgment of God much, or for the Christian, what we might call the discipline of God, that Hebrews 12 references. Um, Because the judgment of God fell upon Christ. Just stay with me. I'll get there in a second, okay? But I want you to see that the judgment of God brings great fear. And that's why here, with Ananias and Sapphira, you immediately find out that when they die, everybody's afraid. Because they see God's judgment on people. Let me give you a couple thoughts that go with that. We fear the one who sees our thoughts. We fear the one who is perfect in holiness. And we fear the one who has the right to judge. Here's the first idea. We fear the one who sees our thoughts. If there's anything you get out of the Ananias and Sapphira story, it should be this. That nobody knew in the congregation that they kept back some of the money for themselves, but claimed they'd given all of it. But somebody knew in the congregation. The Spirit of God knew who told Peter, and Peter told them, and they died. Here's a great question for you. I've been teaching for, I don't know, 20, 25 minutes here, okay? How many of you have had a thought, a thought about something other than what I've been teaching while you've been listening? Can I see your hands, okay? Okay, hold, keep your hands up, keep your hands up, keep your hands up, okay? We're just going to start right down here, and we're going to have you share your thought, okay? Now, I'm going to tell you, you're laughing. Some of you know me well enough to know that I might actually try to do that, okay? And so you're checking out the exits because you're out of here, or you're thinking, man, he just told me that when someone lies, they're going to die in the congregation, okay? I'm going to have to lie. I can't tell him what I was thinking, right? Here's the thing. Somebody knew what you were thinking. Somebody knew. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7 says this, that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And Jeremiah reminds us that the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who shall know it? Which means you can't even know your own heart before. Whoa, whoa, hold on. God does know your heart. That should create a level of uneasiness for us. If you're a teenager and you thought, man, as long as my parents don't find this out, I'm going to be okay, you're thinking wrongly about this. If you're a husband or wife and you're thinking, man, as long as my spouse doesn't find this out, right, you're thinking wrongly about this. The way that Ananias and Sapphira and the entire church right there understood something was that God knew their thoughts and their intentions and you couldn't hide them. That should make us uneasy. And it should bring some level of fear. Here's the second one. We fear the one who is perfect in his holiness, for we are not. We fear the one who is perfect in his holiness, for we are not. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 6, there's this wonderful reminder in the text of what that would be like for us, because that's how it was for Isaiah. Isaiah has this vision and in the vision, he sees these seraphim or these angels. And they're, you know, they're, they're not the little angels you see at Hallmark. Okay, these are really scary angels. 
And each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, here it comes, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is the only time in the Bible where you find three words, bam, 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 back to back. And the idea is this, that of all the qualities God has, this one is the one that sets him apart from us more than any other quality. He is holy, 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 which means he is set apart from us. He is purified, he is sanctified. We fear the one who is perfect in his holiness because we are not. And notice in the text in Isaiah, that's exactly what happens. Isaiah says, and the foundations of threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. I got a problem with my language, Isaiah says. And I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. They all got a problem with their language. And my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah says, I'm about to have a nervous breakdown. Why? Because he sees God perfect in his holiness, and he realizes immediately that he is not. That is also how we begin to think about the fear of the Lord. There's one final one. We fear the one who has the right to judge, for we are at his mercy. That's right. We fear the one who has the right to judge because we are at his mercy. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus speaking there to the disciples says, don't fear the one who can kill your body. Okay? Fear the one who can kill the body and the soul and cast it into hell. Now, that's not Satan. Satan doesn't have that power. That's only the righteous judge who has that power. Whenever I, uh, on more than one occasion, I've, uh, as a pastor, have had the privilege of sitting in the courtroom and supporting both those who are victims and those who are perpetrators. Okay? I'm there serving both. And, and because if there's a perpetrator who's confessed and gone forward, then I'm there serving him. Whenever I'm there, I'm always reminded of this, that the perpetrator who's sitting there, whatever their crime, even if it seems insignificant, they no longer have control. They are at the mercy of the judge and the law and the jury. They're at the mercy. In, in a moment, when the judge says, okay, um, it's, time to, it's time for everybody to go home, you all go home, they're going to put handcuffs on that perpetrator, they're going to walk him through the door, and every time... I sit there, I walk out and just kind of thank God for my freedom. And I realize that someone made a decision at some stage that meant that they now no longer had the right to live freely, but they had to live in captivity in a different scenario than I lived. They were at someone else's mercy. They had lost control. You just got to let this thought settle in for a little bit. God is the righteous judge. I want you to do something with me kind of here as we wrap this portion up. I want you to reach uh, on the pew in front of you, okay? And just grab it, okay? Just grab it. Go ahead and participate. Don't reach on the pew in front of you and grab it, okay? Both hands, okay? Both hands. On July 8th in 1781... Jonathan Edwards preached a message. He didn't yell it. He didn't scream it. He didn't have any PowerPoints. Okay? He couldn't do anything else but just preach the message. And basically, we're told he just spoke it. Right? And what happened is the message frightened people so much that they grabbed the pews and hung on. Okay? I just want to read you a portion of the message. 
just a portion. Jonathan Edwards preached this message because he began to understand in his congregation that in the congregation there were those keep hanging onto the pews, you don't want to fall, okay? He, he began to understand that in his congregation there were those who thought they were Christians but really weren't. Okay? So he said, I better preach a passage about the judgment of God and plead with them to come to Christ. This is what he read, a portion of what he read. The unseen, unthought ways and means of a person going suddenly out of this world are innumerable and conceivable. Unconverted men and women walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering, and there are innumerable places in this covering so weak that they won't bear their weight, and these places are not seen. The arrows of death fly unseen at noonday. The sharpest sight cannot discern them. That is, you do not know when you're going to die. And God has so many different unsearchable ways of taking wicked men out of the world and sending them to hell that there is nothing to make it appear that God could not do it. Do we think of God that way? Do we pause to realize that God in his perfect holiness and justice has that right over every single person on the planet. You say, I don't like that view of God, Phil. I'm telling you, Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead in that moment because they lied and God knew. Okay, you can take your hands off for just a second. Okay. Here's a great question for you to ponder. When Jonathan Edwards finished preaching the message, Do you think that the ground opened up and swallowed up anybody? Did it it suddenly drop somebody into hell right there? There is no record that any of that happened. Which means that these individuals understood the fear of God, not because they felt it, but they believed it by faith. They believed that what the Bible was saying about God was something they should believe, and they feared the Lord because that's how the Bible described God, not because they felt good about it. Just unpack this for you for one final moment. This is not about you impressing God. This is not about you leaving as a Christian. This is about you understanding that when Jesus Christ comes and dies on the cross, the wrath of God, our judgment that we deserve, falls on him. But if you do not cling to Jesus, okay, if you think I'm going to figure this out on my own, okay, I'm going to stand before God one day and I'm going to say, hey, God, let me explain to you how this works. Okay. I'm going to tell you right now, it's not going to work. And it's a reminder for those of us who are Christians that when we come and remember what Christ has done, we understand the grace of God, the love of a father, only because we understand what he did to his son to grant us forgiveness. That's right. We don't come to God and say, oh, he's just a loving God. No, his love was demonstrated when he poured his wrath and judgment that you and I deserved upon his son. The holiness of God matters. It matters for the unbeliever because you're not going to get there on your own to heaven. And it matters for the believer because it gives us such a gratitude, such a gratitude for what God did.
we cannot understand the grace of God unless we understand the potential of the judgment of God. And then the gift looks so rich, so unbelievable that we just say, listen, I want to do what the believers in Acts did. I want to repent, turn from my sin, and I want to turn and grab onto Jesus as fast as I possibly can. There's three great ones in this passage. The great power through the message. The great grace because they understood the gift and they gave. The great fear because they understood what God had done what God did to Ananias and Sapphira because they just were casual about their belief system. You don't want to be. You don't want to be. You say, Phil, that's a harsh version of God. I would hope that you would hear me say that's a true version of God, perfect in holiness, perfect in love, granted to those who believe on the Son. By the way, Um, that's going to come and lead us in worship a little bit here in just a moment. But I want to remind you, and then we're going to have a time of communion. I want to remind you that the time of communion for us is to pause and remember that the wrath of God fell upon the Son so that you and I can have this perfect grace and a relationship with God, something that's unheard of. We fear the one who has the right to judge, for we are at his mercy And when we come to faith in Christ, we no longer fear, but we love him. Take a moment and bow your heads with me where you are. Just want you to think about this as the worship team comes. I want you to ponder these thoughts this morning. Are you acting in the power of God with boldness? Have you understood the grace of God? Have you pondered his great gift? Or do you just kind of do that on Sundays when you're here? Or do you find yourself through the week pondering the grace of God? You never placed your faith in Jesus. Can I remind you that maybe this morning you should be thinking about the fear of God. That God is a perfect judge who has every right to judge you for what you have done in violation of his laws. It's not meant to make you feel bad. It's meant to help you see reality. Maybe this morning, um, you say, oh, we struggle, Phil. Even as a Christian, I struggle with the judgment of God. I would encourage you not to. The judgment falls on Jesus so that you today can know the love of God. Ponder that. For God loved you so much that he gave his son, punished his son, with his judgment, so that you could be the righteousness of Christ. Amazing, amazing love. If you never trusted Christ, I'd invite you to do that here this morning. Don't be afraid. He loves to forgive. He just waits for us to come to him and ask him. You may just want to say, in a prayer as an expression of your belief in Jesus. Dear Lord Jesus, I acknowledge I'm a sinner and I know I need a Savior. I believe you came and died for me to 
pay for the things I've done that are wrong. I'm asking you to save me. I believe in you. Take a moment and thank him for that. For the rest of us, as we sing, we should do it with a deep sense of gratitude for the judgment as believers, as sons and daughters of God, we do not face because that judgment fell upon the Son. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. Thank you for a reality of your character to us. Thank you for Jesus, most of all. In his name we pray. We trust you've been encouraged by today's lesson. For resources to help you move forward in Christ, we invite you to check out our website, aboutfbc.org, or our Facebook page, Fellowship Bible, Mullica Hill.